0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor.
1: Today, the latest on treatments for COVID-19. A bit of a reality check, actually. We know that people with medical problems are at higher risk of severe COVID-19, but new research shows that people with mood disorders such as depression are also more vulnerable. And an insight into the front line in the New South Wales second wave, its Delta outbreak. The numbers move about a little, but if you catch the Delta variant, you seem to be twice as likely to end up in the intensive care unit than Victorians were in their second wave last year with a different virus. What are people, several of them quite young, experiencing when they get, they're get severe enough to need intensive care, and how are ICUs coping with it? As of yesterday, there were 54 people in ICU with 25 on ventilators. That's in New South Wales. Dr Richard Taro is a co-director of the intensive care service at Sydney's Broad Prince Alfred Hospital, which hasn't had much of a let-up actually, as they've been the main receiving hospital in New South Wales for people coming through hotel quarantine COVID positive. And now they have the Delta wave to deal with. Tell me what you're seeing in your patients now that might be different from before.
2: It's hard to say that we're seeing things different from before because it's the same disease that we were seeing last year when we had the big surge in April 2020. I think that with the Delta variant, we're seeing a little bit more presentation earlier after people have had their contact. I think people are getting more gastrointestinal symptoms early on, and I think people are progressing a little bit quicker to respiratory failure and severe COVID with this out of the illness. Those are kind of personal reflections though, because we see a relatively small number of these cases at any one time. So what's actually happening in the hundreds of people that are out there suffering the disease, I don't see as an intensive care specialist.
1: You've called this an intensive care disease. What do you mean? This is an intensive care disease
2: because a small but predictable fraction of people who get this disease end up needing ICU support. To end up in the ICU, you have had organs fail. The organ that you're talking about, for it, let's take the lungs as an example, has stopped working properly. So in the early stages of COVID, the lungs aren't getting enough oxygen into the bloodstream. That lack of oxygen into the bloodstream means that there's not enough oxygen going to the other organs in the body, the kidneys, the brain, the heart. And so those other organs start to fail as well. So the body starts to work harder to make up and get more oxygen in. And to do that, you do something like you would do if you're running a marathon. You start working your breathing muscles harder. You start exerting yourself significantly to make up for the, that lack of oxygen. Now, some of us can run marathons, but not everybody can. And certainly nobody can run marathons for one, two, a week, two weeks of this disease process. And so the muscles that drive your lungs will start to fail. The lungs themselves continue to get worse, and then you end up in the ICU needing the sort of support that we can do. The sorts of things that we can do in the ICU are give you lots of oxygen, which can't be done upon the wards. We can give you some extra breathing support with that oxygen, but sometimes, if the work of breathing, if how hard your lung muscles are having to, your respiratory muscles are having to work. If the lungs just can't get enough blood into the, can't get enough oxygen into the blood, then we need to take over that. And we do that with uh, the mechanical ventilator, the life support machine that everybody knows about.
1: But I, from what I understand here is that one of the problems is once is that you don't leave the, the intensive care after two or three days. And there's, I'm hearing from other intensive care specialists, it's getting really hard to get people off the ventilator. Can you just describe that? Describe that problem.
2: Yeah. So, ICUs, the usual, the average length of stay in an ICU for our core business is sort of two to three days. People come in, they have a heart surgery, for example, they take a day or so to recover from that, another day in the ICU, and then they move on. And ICUs are high throughput places. The majority of our patients only spend a few days with us. With COVID, what happens is that the the disease affects the lungs so severely that it takes a very long time for that lung failure to improve, for that lung failure to resolve. So what happens is around six, eight days into the disease, people's respiratory failure gets bad enough that they end up on a ventilator. And then the lungs don't improve, the lungs stay stuck like that and you're stuck on a ventilator for days, weeks, sometimes months. The, intent, the intensive care group in the UK, ICNARC, looked at about 23,000 of their uh, ICU admissions and they showed that, about, that their length of stay for people that survive COVID was about three weeks. People who are in the ICU who are sick enough to need a ventilator and then need respiratory and then need renal support, so dialysis, we're in the unit for about five weeks. So you take a unit which is used to having high turnover, having lots of patients coming through in sort of three, four days, and then you have patients who are there for three weeks, five weeks, and sometimes longer, then it really changes the nature of what your intensive care looks like.
1: So what does that do to staff, the stress on staff, the stress on the system?
2: COVID's got a few unique things that that it puts on our staff. Last year in particular, before we were vaccinated, when we were in this fog of what is real about this disease, what do we know, aerosol droplets and so on, there was a lot of stress about personal risk because clearly around the world, there are a lot of medical staff getting sick, there was, uh, you know, lots of reports of medical staff dying from the disease. Now that's somewhat different. We've got some pretty good ideas about how effective PPE is, uh, how well it works, how to apply it, how to make sure that it's working properly and Luckily, all the staff are vaccinated as well, and that gives us a, a sort of a backdrop that we know has gives us some protection. Being at the bedside of these patients and the nurses who are the sort of the core of the intensive care unit spend hours at the bedside of these patients is physically quite taxing. You're in a cap, you're in face shield, goggles, you've got the N95 mask on, you've got an impermeable gown You've got gloves. You're in scrubs. Your feet are protected. It's hot, tiring work, and the nurses, in particular, are doing lots of physical things like turning the patients, making sure that their pressure areas are looked after, making sure that you know all, all the the hygiene things have to be done. really working hard in this very difficult environment.
1: Now, what about treatments? So last year, you know, steroids and and so on. There are suggestions from around the world that the standard treatments that you're using in ICU last year are not working as well this year?
2: In in the 18 months that this has been going, one of the things that we've, we've had confirmed is that all the standard things that we do in ICU are working well. Um, so really careful attention to the mechanical ventilator, really careful attention to making sure that we're not pushing too much air, not over-inflating the lungs, really careful attention to nutrition, uh, really careful attention to antibiotics and minimising those from, uh, you know, really careful attention to preventing blood clots and and monitoring for blood clots are all things that in the 18 months we now have had confirmed, they're really important. They're the, the standard bread and butter ICU and they still remain that with this disease. There are a couple of treatments that are really well proven now for COVID. Uh, you mentioned steroids, it's pretty well confirmed now that Uh, dexamethasone started when a patient needs oxygen which is a corticosteroid sort of a hydrocortisone relative works and it protects patients from it stops some patients from ending up on more oxygen and stops some patients from ending up on the ventilator or ECMO and then there's also the uh, interleukin six antagonists. So interleukin six is a chemical in the body which helps, which the body uses to regulate the in- inflammation, the the uh, response to um, the virus as part of the immune response. And the interleukin six inhibitors uh, look like they work quite effectively again at stopping the progression of this disease in some people.
1: So you're not seeing much difference with Delta.
2: What we are seeing with Delta is that it takes a long time to clear these patients. Last year, sort of two, three weeks into the illness, we were able to get uh, PCRs and cultures for the virus and the virus had gone. So we could take people out of the COVID pathway, which is that super heightened level of Personal protective equipment, that super heightened level of awareness about that, and move them back into the general ICU population, which is a a big you know a big step forward in terms of the care and being able to visit, have visitors and so on. This year is taking a lot longer. We're we've got patients who are three, four weeks into their illness, who are still strongly positive on their swabs, whose CT values, so that's telling us how much virus there is on the PCR, is still. Uh, quite low, so these patients still look like they're quite infectious, and maybe this is part of the Delta virus. Maybe it's part of the, the combination of dexamethasone and tocilizumab, the IL six inhibitor that we're that we're using. But these patients are taking a long time
1: to clear the virus. What have you seen in terms of the vaccination rates of people coming through ICU?
2: We haven't had anyone who's fully vaccinated come through our ICU.
1: Now in a sense geographically the virus in Sydney's moved on from where you are in central Sydney to the southwest. What are you hearing from your colleagues? We're
2: hearing that people are presenting uh, very sick to the emergency departments and presenting uh, really unwell and so the hospitals in South West, West Sydney at the moment are carrying a big patient load.
1: So if that doesn't make you want to go out and get vaccinated I'm not sure what will. Dr Richard Tataro is Co-Director of the Intensive Care Service at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney. This is RN's Health Report with me Norman Swan. One of the challenges of having so many people unvaccinated is that there's a need for effective therapies that can protect people from getting seriously ill, as well as drugs to save the lives of those who do end up needing intensive care. The challenge is only made worse by the emergence of new variants like Delta, which behave differently to previous strains. There are some promising options being trialled, but the right combination of drugs given at the right stage of infection is often critical, as Richard Hattaro was saying. Dr. David Wall is Professor of Medicine at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and an infectious disease researcher. He's also principal investigator for the Active 2 trials, which are studying therapies in people recently diagnosed with COVID. I spoke to Professor Wall earlier. Thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. My pleasure. Tell us about these trials that you're involved in.
3: I'm involved in a really interesting study right now that uh, started out in the United States with over 200 sites and has now expanded to a number of different countries around the world. And the idea was, can we find promising therapeutics, medicines to treat people with COVID-19 before they get in the hospital? And as therapies become available, insert them into the trial and evaluate them to see if they're better than just the standard of care. Understanding that therapies, promising agents will come and go, that there will be things that will be discovered and created, and we want to be able to study them. So rather than having a football match between one team and another team and then having another match and another match and semifinals and finals, which is how we usually do clinical trials, this is a platform where teams can come in, if you will, and see how they do. And if they don't do well, they're ejected and another team comes in and you have three or four teams at one time all compared to the- So you
1: can can be knocked out, to use an Olympic analogy.
3: you knocked out, right. So it's really a very efficient design. People in the cancer world have been doing this for a number of years because they have so many different cocktails and combinations that it just isn't practical to do one-on-one matches, again, one therapy versus another.
1: So what's got to the the medal dais, if you like? So first, you know, off the blocks, were
3: these therapies called monoclonal antibodies. And monoclonal antibodies are antibodies and they are just one type of antibody. And they're designed in a lab. And typically they copy an antibody that somebody made. So we have monoclonal antibodies that you can develop to all sorts of infections. And for COVID-19, there were a number that were easily made because they replicated antibodies that people had made to fight COVID-19 that in the lab looked really good at neutralizing the virus. So replicating those and then infusing them into people was the first approach for treating COVID-19. In fact, right now in the United States, the only outpatient therapeutic that has emergency use authorization, which we're giving to people, are monoclonal antibodies. Antivirals and things like that are being developed. We've seen them being used in the hospital, like remdesivir, but antivirals haven't been authorized yet but are promising and so we have a whole host of
1: therapeutics. so what's showing promise because some have fallen by the wayside and remdesivir is not a very good drug really it's pretty safe but it it doesn't it just shortens hospitalization it doesn't really do people a lot of good and costs a lot of money and convalescent serum which is a mixture of antibodies hasn't really worked very well is anything standing out at the moment
3: it's, a, it's really good to kind of bookend between those two things. So here we have remdesivir, which is a medicine that's used exclusively in the hospital. And in my personal opinion is that's too late for that medicine to work. The modest activity we see is probably because we're not applying that antiviral medicine at the exactly right point. But if it could be given sooner, maybe remdesivir would work better. Instead, we have monoclonal antibodies, which you could get one infusion, one time, and there's people now are experimenting with intramuscular injection, and we know we can even give it under the skin. So a one-time deal is a little bit more practical, but what we really need is oral therapy. We need pills, uh, and we need something that you can call into a pharmacy that you could take. That's really, I think, where we need to head. But right now, unfortunately, this last week, we've had a surge, as you know, and more and more people are coming in, and we're hooking them up to an IV and giving them a monoclonal antibody cocktail to try to get their immune system to jumpstart. And that's really where we're at right now.
1: So in other words, you're using whatever is available, but some have fallen by the wayside totally, haven't they?
3: There have been therapeutics that have been tried and a lot of these repurposed drugs are not panning out as some, I think, had hoped. But right now we're still in a period of time where some therapies have fallen by the wayside. There's one monoclonal antibody that hasn't proved durable because it doesn't work against the new variants. So here is a situation where it worked initially, but as the virus evolves and the the proteins change, the monoclonal antibody no longer attaches to where it needs to be because the target has altered. So this is a medicine that, you know, for a while was shining as a potential therapy, but it's just not a good one for our present day situation. But there are other monoclonal antibodies that do look effective and continue to be effective. And then you're talking about, to give you a sense, Norman, in the clinical trials, they are taking the rate of hospitalization and death and dropping it, you know, by at least 50, 60, 70, 80%. That's pretty impressive. And that's why we're seeing these used, you know, as much as we can here at my hospital and in other parts of the United
1: States. And what's the Pfizer antiviral looking like?
3: So the Pfizer antiviral is just starting out in some big clinical trials. So there's another, this next generation of therapeutics that we're going to see more about uh, that many of us are excited. And we what we also need are therapies that work in different ways. You know, a monoclonal antibody is just one family of drugs that we should use, but antivirals are what we really do need as well. And so whether they be just like we have for HIV or even as we have for the in- influenza virus, we need things that can act quickly, that are easy to take. And, and as I, I said before, I, I really think we need oral therapies. That's going to really be the game changer for us as people taking therapy from their local pharmacies as soon as possible after they get diagnosed.
1: Now, my mailbag is still full of people saying, what about ivermectin?
3: So far, it doesn't really seem to have panned out. And you know there is a large companion study, similar to the one that, that I'm involved with, that is, again, looking at people from across you know, the United States and elsewhere. And ivermectin is one of the medicines that is being evaluated. Uh, so I think you know there's a lot of interest in ivermectin, in vitamin D, and other um, things that I think are fairly ubiquitous and easy to use. I, I My hope is that some of these things do work, but so far we've not seen compelling data. Um, but yeah, I know a lot of people have pinned their hopes on some of these repurposed medicines. I would just like to see more data to support their use and those kind of clinical trials, rigorous clinical trials done just like they would be done for any other medicine, um, federally supported. um, I think those are the kind of studies we need and that are going on right now.
1: So the the therapies that you're talking about are therapies as you said that you take uh, maybe if you're becoming sick with COVID but before you need hospital so you get in early. But what's also needed are therapies that help you once you're in hospital to prevent you getting to ICU or indeed dying. And there are people saying, well, you know, at the moment you use dexamethasone, a steroid, remdesivir, which only has minimal effect. And there's also an anti-immune system drug to stop the inflammation, tocilizumab. But people are saying, They're not sure whether those are working as well with Delta than they did before.
3: It's a really good question, and I'm hoping we'll get more data because I also have concerns about whether or not Delta is not only more contagious, but more pathogenic, meaning more dangerous once you have it. It's unclear to me, but I think some of the signals are there. But I would like to see more data from people in hospital in the UK to help us understand more. But you're exactly right. For a time there, we had very little to offer people in the hospital and mortality rates were higher. Uh, we now do have some agents that, although modest, when cobbled together, along with other things that we've learned to do, I think have really dramatically reduced mortality. Uh, so I think those are important. Certainly, if it was me, you know, and I was in the hospital and I was struggling to breathe, I would say, give me the remdesivir, give me the tocilizumab and give me the, you know, the dexamethasone, because together uh, they do seem to have an impact. But you're right. We don't have super potent agents. And part of the problem, and I think your listeners, I appreciate this, is that early on, the problem is the virus. Early on, when people are outside the hospital, when they're not feeling well, the virus is replicating and it's causing some damage. And over a very short period of time, there's a shift where now the immune system that's fighting the virus starts to cause inflammation and even if the virus is no longer replicating, well, not that many virus particles in your lungs, the inflammation from the immune response, this exuberant response is what's causing you to be sick, literally drowned in your own inflammatory fluids. And that's the problem, and you can't oxygenate. We shift from fighting the virus to fighting the immune system. And for a time, there's an overlap there. So there's a sweet spot for each of these therapeutics, uh, and that's what we've learned how to think about and apply, and we're still learning. And that's been the trick of COVID-19 therapeutics for hospitalised patients.
1: Let's assume that you've got some effective therapeutics eventually. What's the role for therapeutics in a world which is highly vaccinated?
3: Yeah, really important. So hopefully, if we could really vaccinate our planet sufficiently, which if we don't, we will suffer the consequences for quite a long time to come. The good news, as we all know, is that the vaccines work really, really well against Delta variant. The vaccines are designed so that if the virus comes into your body, you could repel the virus as quickly as possible within days and not get sick. They're not supposed to create a force field around you that doesn't let the virus into your nose and throat. That's not what they do. They're not some magical raincoat or force field. It's designed intentionally so that if you do get infected, you can fight it off. And that's what we're seeing. These Olympians and sports figures who are getting infected and hardly having symptoms who are vaccinated, that's because their vaccine's working. The other way the vaccine's working is it's keeping people from getting sick enough to be in the hospital or even dying. So I think if we get more people vaccinated to the point where there's hardly any people coming into the hospital, we will not need therapeutics like we do now.
1: Well, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Any time. Thank you.
1: Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease Researcher, Dr. David Wall from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Since the early days of the pandemic, it's been a race to understand who's most vulnerable to severe disease and death from the virus and how best to protect them. We know certain chronic illnesses such as heart failure and diabetes, as well as having a weakened immune system, puts people at much higher risk. Now comes compelling evidence that people living with mood disorders such as depression and bipolar disorder are more likely to be hospitalised or die from COVID. Sarah Segy reports.
4: As the New South Wales COVID outbreak intensifies and with cases appearing across the country, the authors of a new study published in the journal JAMA Psychiatry hope authorities will take notice of its findings as they make decisions about who is most in need of protection
5: individuals who have a diagnosis of a mood disorder and mood disorder would refer to a person who has either major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder two very common disorders throughout australia and all around the world our paper identified that these individuals as a group are at a higher risk when compared to persons in the general population not only of contracting covid 19 but also ending up in hospital because of covid 19 and dying because of COVID-19.
4: Roger McIntyre is a professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto and is one of the paper's authors. The study analysed data from 91 million people.
5: So when we look at the odds ratios, in other words, to what degree is the risk? We found almost a doubling, and in some cases, more than a doubling of the risk of infection and death. And we've all been familiar with, you know, the risk that is afforded if you have cardiovascular disease and obesity. And what we've learned is is that the risk with these well-known pre-existing conditions, just to benchmark it, is around a 50% to 100%. So to put it in simple mathematics, it will maybe double your risk. Well, it turns out that having a depression or bipolar disorder is, in many cases, doubling the risk, if not more than doubling the risk. So it is an extraordinary risk. Since COVID-19 came into our lives in a most uninvited way, we've all heard about other pre-existing conditions, such as obesity and cardiovascular disease, there's others, but there was less attention played to mental health and mental disorders. And this is the first large scale analysis like this anywhere we're aware of, that really brings forward empirically this finding that mental illness just like having obesity or heart disease is a pre-existing condition, putting people at very high risk of this terrible virus.
4: So what is it about some mental health conditions that put people at higher risk? Ian Hickey is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Sydney and a founder of the Brain and Mind Centre at the university.
6: One of the mistakes about depression is to think of it as just a psychological response. It's a physiological perturbation. The body is perturbed in the immune system, in the neuroendocrine or cortisol stress response system, in the sympathetic nervous system and in this metabolic system. So depression is much, much more than just in your head. It's in your body and your body's perturbed and has trouble then coping with things like infection, with viral illnesses.
4: And Professor Hickey's worried. Many people with mental health disorders can't get the support they need or protection from the virus right now.
6: What we've got to think about in Australia is who is really at risk. And most of the emphasis has been on simply on ageing, that older people are at risk. This study on depression joins earlier studies on psychosis, on illnesses like schizophrenia, which showed the same thing, that those people were at risk of hospitalisation and death. But these much, much more common mood disorders, actually same thing, increased rate of hospitalisation and death on exposure. Now, importantly, mood disorders start in young people the great majority start before age 25 and those people are not a priority for vaccination at the moment nor are they a priority for health care only about 1 in 6 people in australia with depression actually gets effective treatment so we need to have two things happen lift our game on treating depression effectively because that puts the body right not just the mind right and also vaccinating those particular groups.
4: Professor McIntyre agrees there's a case for prioritising people with mood disorders in the vaccine rollout.
5: This is about, in fact, making sure the evidence, that is the evidence-informing public policy, is, in fact, shaping the decisions which actually protects the most vulnerable of our population. So, in short, I do unequivocally believe, based on our analysis, that people with depression and bipolar in Australia should be prioritised to get the COVID-19 vaccinations.
4: Since the pandemic began, measures such as prolonged lockdowns have been put in place to help protect people from the virus. At the same time, levels of distress, anxiety, and depression have soared, including here in Australia. Professor Hickey says young people have been particularly affected.
6: So the other side of the coin here is the rates of anxiety and depression are going up as a consequence of the pandemic and particularly a prolonged lockdown. So the social dislocation and the economic and other factors that are happening, educational disruption for younger people is causing more cases of depression as we go. So effective management of the pandemic socially and economically also has big impacts on mental health. And that matters in terms of financial support. It also really matters in keeping lockdowns as short as they can be. But of course, this also nationally depends on the effectiveness of the vaccine rollout.
1: Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Sydney, Ian Hickey, ends that report from Sarah Segy. And if this story has raised concerns for you, you can call Beyond Blue's 24-hour advice and support line on 1300 224636.
0: Norman, now it's time for our mailbag section. And, of course, our listeners know already that they can send their questions to us by emailing healthreport at abc.net.au. Justine's got a question wondering whether there's any good completed studies which demonstrate the use of vitamin D or other supplements which reduce the overall loading on the brain and the central nervous system's response to pain. Uh, Justine's been in chronic pain since the delivery of her first child 11 years ago. Her vitamin D levels dropped then, and she's just wondering what the link might be between vitamin D and this chronic pain condition.
1: Um, Well, I can't give Justine... Uh, specific advice, not that I'm necessarily qualified to give advice anyway, and we can't give advice on this uh, question and answer session, but we can talk about some of the evidence. So I'm not aware of very much evidence in terms of vitamin D and chronic pain. Um, it might not be a surprise that vitamin D levels could fall in somebody with uh, chronic pain because you may not be getting out quite as much. You might be more disabled. I don't know what the nature of the pain is. Um, what's much more relevant to people with chronic pain is, your, is how you're managing it psychologically. So that's not saying that the pain is in your mind, but how you, the, the, the state of your mind, if you like, does affect your perception of pain and your ability to manage it. And so there, there's a program, for example, at um, Royal North Shore in Sydney, which is actually a two-week program, which reteaches people about managing their pain. And one of the criteria for getting on that program when you've got chronic pain is that you're off all medication altogether. So you're on no pain-relieving medication altogether. And you learn psychological, physical um, strategies to help you manage your pain. They don't promise to get rid of the pain, but they help you to manage it and get better. So I think when you've got chronic pain, a chronic pain syndrome of any kind, you've got to talk to your GP about a multifaceted approach. The problem is a lot of chronic pain clinics have long waiting lists, and you need more than one specialist if you like expert to help you out you need psychologists you need exercise physiologists uh, you need pain specialists and others to manage the process to hit because it's multifaceted and um and really uh, justine's right it is a neuro dysfunction it's that the there's been a cross circuit in the brain and whatever the initial damage was you're just left with a perception of pain well not just you are left with a perception of pain And um, as we've said many times on the health report, the brain, mind, and body are all one. And if you can actually get the way you're responding to this in your brain sorted, you will help the pain. It won't necessarily take it away, but it will help.
0: So probably not as simple as a vitamin D supplement.
1: No, and you've got to watch vitamin D um, tests. They're not reliable, uh, which is why the government removed the subsidy on a lot of them. Um, They don't necessarily give you an accurate idea. And taking vitamin D supplements is cheap and pretty low risk if you talk it over with your GP. And you know if it helps, it helps, but I can't imagine why it would help. But if it does, that's great. Th- think about your life as a whole and you, your psychological state, how you're coping with this, and see if your GP can organize some multifaceted care for you.
0: Mm. Um, a question from Annie on the back of the interview that I did last week about the possible co- association between osteoporosis and cognitive function, Annie had transient global amnesia lasting about eight hours, that, that strange phenomenon where people just have no short-term memory at all. It was a very exper- scary experience for her partner. She also fractured her patella, her knee bone, five months ago and has been diagnosed with osteoporosis. She's wondering whether there's an association between the two.
1: The answer is I don't know. I mean, you can talk about this, the The, the relationship was with osteoporosis and Cognitive decline in dementia, wasn't it, Tegan?
0: Yeah, and it sort of seemed to be that they could see that this this was a a correlation that went in both directions. There wasn't really a clear cause of either. It seemed to me, or my understanding of uh, the expert that we spoke to, was that there might be risk factors that increase for both of them, but they haven't been identified. The big problem that I really took away from that conversation was that these two disciplines, and indeed lots of different medical disciplines, are not great at talking to each other. So finding these correlations can be quite tricky.
1: And Transient Global Amnesia will refer you to our... If you go to our website, you can find... uh, We had a great documentary on the health report made by Dasha Ross talking about her experience of Transient Global Amnesia, and she spoke to some of the experts in the area internationally and there there really is no relationship. There doesn't seem to be any relationship between transient global amnesia and dementia. Uh, some people believe there might be a little bit, but probably not. So if the relationship, as Tegan says, tenuous as it is in terms of cause and effect, is with dementia, it's very unlikely to be related to transient global amnesia.
0: Susie's got a question about uh, probiotics or uh the healthy bi- microbiome. She's fully breastfed her three month old baby boy, but she had a long labour. She received antibiotics when she was in um, labour and also had antibiotics after she had the baby, and the baby also needed antibiotics after birth. She was really wanting a vaginal birth so that she could give him the best start in life as far as kickstarting a healthy microbiome and had also hoped that breastfeeding would repair any damage that might have been done to his developing microbiome. But she's since learned that the helpful bifidobacteria, which is present in breast milk, uh, often is absent in the breast milk of mothers who've received antibiotics. What can she do about this? How long will it take for the bifidobacteria to return to her breast milk?
1: Well, I'm not an expert in this, but the evidence would suggest that um, your microbiome can bounce back very quickly although the effect of long-term antibiotics is really poorly understood and could have longer-term effects. And there are two strategies that people are recommending at the moment. One is prebiotics, and that really means your diet. Are you eating a diet that doesn't have too much red meat in it? In other words, a Mediterranean-style diet. That actually can produce a very healthy microbiome within a few days. And then people are suggesting, obviously, fermented foods like yoghurt And you can take probiotic supplements, although people are not sure the extent to which those work. But you're better using the fresh ones. You probably, most people would say you should use the fresh ones, the ones that are in the fridge and the pharmacy. Um, And that combination can repopulate your bowel and then presumably from there your breast milk. So I I just think it's a a process, but which not many people really fully understand.
0: Uh, We had a microbiologist, Dr Lisa Stinson from the University of Western Australia as one of our top five scientists a few months ago and she actually wrote an article about this and how to give babies the best start to life when it comes to their microbiome. And yes, breastfeeding is one of those things, but she also suggests things like thinking about getting a pet, um, again, avoiding unnecessary antibiotics and, and that prebiotic diet, like you, like you mentioned, Norman. Um, so, and also uh, letting your baby play in the dirt, but probably not when they're only three months old. <laughs> And one last question from Eric, who's asking, what exactly is polymerase chain testing? So this is the PCR testing that we've heard so much about over the COVID pandemic, moment.
1: So PCR is polymerase chain reaction. Uh, it goes back many years. And essentially, polymerase chain reaction is about reading off a very small amount of genetic code that you might detect in a sample and then amplifying it up. Um so it's it's at detectable levels that you can measure it in a test, and that's that's basically it. I and mean, when you've heard of the CT value, well, essentially that's really a measure in with the COVID testing of how many times you've got to amplify it up to detect it. And the more times you've got to multiply it uh, and amplify it up, the less virus there is there.
0: Why is the PCR test uh, considered to be the gold standard?
1: because it's very good at detecting very tiny amounts of virus that's that, that that's essentially it without actually having to culture the virus the, the problem with it is that it detects viral fragments and you you make the assumption that you're infectious when you may not be so you've got to actually got to take it in the context of the person's story so you may It may be negative in the early stages when there's not very much virus around and even the PCR test can't amplify it up. And it may be positive for a long time after you've actually stopped being infectious because you produce these viral fragments. So there are problems with it, but at detecting virus at very, very low levels, it's excellent.
0: Well, that's all I've got for you in the mailbag today, Norman. And of course, listeners, you can email us healthreport at abc.net.au with your questions and comments. We welcome them all. Uh, We'll catch you again next week. See you then.